Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, with us on the Weekly Standard. Late night response to the Donald Trump speech is Steve Hayes. And I know, Steve, you hung on to every word in that short, pithy one hour and 16 minute performance. Well, there, there were lots of words. There was lots of shouting. Uh, there was lots of government in that speech. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly effective speech. Um, it, it felt to me like a longer version, maybe a slightly more disciplined version of Trump's stump speech. And uh, my view was coming into the speech that he had to rally conservatives to his cause, people who had been reluctant to support Trump, um, to bring them aboard, to, to consolidate the Republican Party in a way that he hasn't been able to do so uh, to this point, and then also broaden his appeal and, and make himself a, a plausible president in the eyes of viewers, not really people in the actual venue, but people across the country. And it's not clear at all to me that he did uh, either of them. Yeah, it seemed like he was talking to the talk radio audience quite a bit with the topics, the tone, the way he approached them. And it was interesting. I watched the you'll be shocked by this, Steve, but I didn't watch it at the venue. I watched it across the street at a bar. And uh, Wait, what? He, I know. I know the side of character from an Irish bar. Um, but uh, for the first five, six minutes, he kind of had him the crowd. They clearly wanted to see what was up. You know what I mean? These are not political people per se. I talked to a few people around me and they were kind of casually. They were they were proud. It was Cleveland. They liked Ohio in the limelight. They generally seemed to be you know friendly towards Trump. But he lost them after five or six minutes. And only occasionally with a, you know, a few flourishes on Make America Great did he ever get him back. Are are you expensing uh, the bar tab? <laughs> what bar? Me? I would never drink. Right I, I, I only drink socially. But uh, my my point is, they were ready to listen, and he didn't seem to be working hard to get to them. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it, to to me, I mean, what what he what he did was, you know, he had this sort of uh, broader opening. Then he laid out the problems in tremendous detail, the way that he sees uh, the country, I mean, the, the, the the sort of dark place that the the country is in right now, and then walked through not really solutions. I saw the speechwriter Stephen Miller um, on CNN say that what he did was, was lay out the problems and then lay out the solutions. I didn't hear much in the way of solutions. He talked about what he would do, but he didn't actually detail how he would do any of these things. He simply made assertions about getting things done. Um, you know, that's very different. I will say one area in which I disagree with some of the critics, at least some of the online critics, there's a lot of criticism about how dark it was and foreboding, and, you know, constant references to danger and the place that America is right now. And, and certainly if I had written the speech, I would have uh, made it lighter, particularly at the end and, and more optimistic. I mean, I think it's fine to lay out the problems, but you have to, to give people a sense that you can really solve them in this sort of a specific and concrete way. On the other hand, you know, a lot of Americans do feel like things aren't going very well right now. I mean, depending on what poll you look at, 65 to 75% of the country thinks America's going in the wrong direction. So I'm not sure Trump will really be punished much for saying that things are in a bad place right now. I mean, you go back and you look at the, the way that he listed the problems in the Middle East in particular, 
exactly right. And you know, I think I think that will resonate with people because he's in a sense, at least in that part of the speech, identifying with where most Americans are. That most Americans pick up the newspaper and they think, oh, not again, another crisis, another problem. And, and Trump did that in his speech, and and I don't think it will will necessarily play in America, the rest of America, the way that the political press seems to think it'll play. You know, it's interesting the uh, impact of watching Ivanka introduce him. And I was once again in a, in a bar and a lot of guys, uh, and there were a lot of interesting comments about her, not from a public policy perspective, I have to confess. Uh, but they, several people, I overheard several people say, you know, say what you want about Trump. Man, he has great kids. He must do something right. There must be something there. The kids are fantastic. And then all that warmth and goodwill he builds up, Trump never, I didn't see, made it even an attempt to tap into it to say, yes, let me show you this guy that my daughter Tiffany and my two sons and you know now Ivanka have talked about. He never showed him. Instead, he went straight to you know, like talk radio talking points. Yeah, he did a little bit at the end. I thought he could have done it a little bit more. Um, yeah, look, I think pe- you know pe- people want to like his kids. I think that that drives part of this. Um, yeah, they present. Well, I thought their speeches were among the better speeches from from Donald Jr. from Eric and and from Ivanka were among the better speeches in uh, the, over the course of the convention. But I think that had to do much more with the fact that I thought most of the other speeches were crummy, rather than these speeches being, you know, Churchillian or, or or soaring rhetoric. And I don't think they really took advantage of showing uh, how, you know, why Donald Trump should be president. I mean, I thought Ivanka gave a nice speech tonight, a nice introduction of her, of her father. I have no doubt that she means the things that she says. But I think people hearing that expect children to say good things about their father, particularly if their children on national television at a political convention. I mean, you you, you sort of factor that in. So I'm not sure it's really going to going to do much uh, to help him. But he didn't build on it either. And this is my point is I keep going back to how did that speech move the ball? How did this convention move the ball? I would argue that the most important lingering moment of the week is not from Donald Trump at all or anyone named Trump. It's from Ted Cruz. And that's the lingering moment. That's what this convention will be remembered for. And, And that was the bar that Trump needed to overcome to be more memorable, more compelling, more, you know, relevant than, uh, uh, Ted Cruz ripping away the, you know, Band-Aid on the divide in the Republican Party. Trump, I'm sorry, uh, Ted Cruz is still the headliner. Trump's just the opening act. No, absolutely right. I mean, I think the convention. I think I think the convention overall was a failure. I, I think the, the the convention was was clearly a mess. I and mean, if you if you go from right, you know, the Melania, the plagiarism. Um, problems or controversy. It's probably true that the media spent more time than they needed to on it, but it mattered. And the, the Trump campaign couldn't answer the simple questions and at first denied that there was a problem, then admitted there was a problem. I mean, it was just a mess, the response to that. The Cruz speech itself, I think, is, is uh, obviously the, the moment of greatest controversy. But again, the way the Trump campaign handled that, where they, you know, said that they were, they, that they said that they were shocked. They had vetted the speech and then they said they'd never seen the speech. And then they said, you know, it was just on and on. They said they were, it was no big deal. The Cruz had given the speech and then people beat him up for the entire day from the, from the Trump campaign. So it's just this, this sort of chaotic, um, 
environment around the convention generally. And, and the other thing that I think the convention last, I mean, usually what you have are these theme days, and it's clear it's an emerging theme, and it sort of builds to a crescendo over right. the four days, culminating in this great big speech by the, by the nominee. That really didn't happen. I mean, on the economy night, you had several speeches that basically beat up Hillary Clinton on national security and foreign policy. I mean, it was just a lot of mixing, and there wasn't sort of an emergent theme in the way that I think you really need to do to, to, to make an impression on potential voters. Uh, I, I agree with you, and I think it's a tremendously lost opportunity for a campaign that needs lots of wins because of the Electoral College math, because of the numbers. I have one last question for you. The uh, When I ran campaigns, the adage was, do they like you? Do they trust you? Can you do the job? In that order. That was the how people tended to vote. And we know that neither Trump nor uh, Hillary Clinton are particularly likable, and I think Trump missed opportunity to bolster those numbers just these past four days. We know nobody trusts them, period. I mean, we've never seen distrust numbers on two people like this. So is the default going to be that Hillary Clinton is the—we don't like either, we don't trust either, but she has some vague experience of governance, and therefore she's president? Yeah, I mean, that that would be this the sort of proper framing if her experience had been good. I mean, right. I do think it's fair to hold her responsible for much of what the president President Obama has done on foreign policy. And you know, when you give when you when she cites that as her experience, you know, whether she just the things that she's taken credit for on the campaign trail and in her book, that's not a very impressive case that she's building on her own behalf. So. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it's the bottom line is, at some point, uh, when we get to Election Day, a, a vast number of Americans are going to end up casting a vote for somebody they detest. And I think the question is, what are the other factors that compel them to vote for that person, despite their personal dislike of, right. of the candidate? And, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the one big the one big number, uh, I think, is, is this change of... Uh, direction. The fact that people want change, uh, this, this I think is a change election. It may not end up being a change election, but it certainly looks like a change election now. And I think if you're the Trump campaign, that is where you're placing all of your hope. And they did that a little bit tonight in, in the speech, um, talking about the change, uh, that he would be the agent of change. And I think that's, that's probably their best argument. Things are crummy, so he described that things aren't going well, and I'm going to change them pretty simple argument um and and if enough people are fed up with the way things are going maybe it's enough to sneak them to sneak them uh over the line to victory sure. i'm still skeptical of that i still think she's the the front runner he may get a, a small bounce out of this convention but um i still think he's he's more likely to lose in november than he is to win all i can say steve is if it's if his message is really that simple why did it take an hour and 16 minutes for him to deliver it to us as somebody in my twitter timeline said if he's our voice why can't i get myself to stop talking and uh, that's how it felt at the end (laughs) steve hayes with the weekly standard thanks for staying up late for this uh post uh post speech analysis here on the podcast we appreciate your time Absolutely, you bet, Michael. You've been listening to another edition of the Weekly Standard live from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland.